You're listening to Unravel, the podcast, where we go behind and beyond stories featured at our monthly live show. From Shanghai, I'm your host, Clara Davis. So usually when I get introduced to people, we'll make a bit of chit chat, and then usually there's kind of a pause, and then, where are you from? And I've realized that this question, matched with the sort of quizzical, intense expression, is、uh, due to the fact that the way I sound,、uh, my accent, and the way I look are kind of incongruous. So then I'll say, well, I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland, and some of you might have already picked that one, yeah. <laughs> so then a bit more chat, and then. Sometimes there'll be a kind of cock to the head, and where are your family from? <laughs> All right. So it's usually at this point that I kind of put the poor souls out of their misery and explain that I'm the product of a Northern Irish mother and a father from Zimbabwe. So how did this come about? Well, in the 1980s, mid 1980s, my、uh, parents found themselves both studying in England、um, and probably were drawn together by mutual stories of persecution by the British.、Uh, <laughs> My mother was arrested on a number of occasions for the crime of sounding Irish, and、uh, my father was black in the eighties. So you know, <laughs> but in any case, they met, fell in love, married, had me, and in nineteen eighty-six, when I was one year old, we moved to Zimbabwe. Today's episode features Tendai Chivero and the story he shared at our Stand by Me show almost a year ago. His story digs deeper into that multi-layered identity he references in the clip you just heard, the questions he's been asked throughout his life, and the answers he's found along the way. His is a tale of discovery of his family and himself that spans continents and decades. You'll hear more of his story throughout the episode. We hope you enjoy my conversation with Tendai. Can you first say your full name for the for the microphone? <laughs>、uh, yes, my name is Tendai Chiveru. I mean, I've got two middle names as well, but they're pretty tough. Can you give us the Can you give us the whole name? Yes, my name is Tendai Hatanete Chengatai Chiveru. Why do you leave out those those two middle ones? It、I、flows think, off your tongue. I think Tendai throws people enough <laughs> without chucking in Hatanete and Chengatai. Tendai is actually really common in Zimbabwe, so、okay. it's a Zimbabwean name, and it's basically like John. In Zimbabwe, you go down the street, you hear someone shout "Tendai," ten people turn around.、Huh. So yeah, it's actually not that uncommon. But yeah, Zimbabwe is a small place, so <laughs> it's outside of Zimbabwe, you're not going to see many Tendais. You start off your story with having to explain where your family's from in order to explain how you came to be from Belfast. Growing up, did you know other mixed families like yours? There are very few black or brown faces in Belfast, sort of in the early nineties. I knew we knew、um, some other families from Zimbabwe, but they weren't mixed. They'd, they'd moved from Zimbabwe、um, to Northern Ireland when things had started to go a little bit wrong、uh, back in Zimbabwe in the early nineties. So yeah, not really any mixed families. That's very different now. Actually, it's very、um, sort of diverse, multicultural place now, Belfast. But back then, it definitely stood out. When you have to give that explanation to people that you meet about where you're from,、mm. I mean, how do you reconcile your Zimbabwean and your Northern Irish identities? I think having spent what you'd call, I guess, your my formative years in Belfast, so living there from the age of nine till eighteen, and then obviously that was still home while I was at university.、Um, 
after the age of 18. And that's where all my best friends are. I think being Northern Irish is definitely the core part of my identity. Um, and I guess that's how I would introduce myself, mainly because, you know, that's what the accent is. But obviously, when people look at me and hear my name, mm. then there's a whole other identity which, you know, brings itself up. And I'm very proud of that Zimbabwean identity as well. And I identify a lot with that. So I guess, you know, <laughs> I, I saw the, if you're talking about sports teams, I'll support Ireland. But if Ireland were playing Zimbabwe, I'd probably go for Zimbabwe. Mm. <laughs> My father made the decision for our family to move back to the UK. Now, you can imagine, you know, going from beautiful, sunny, happy, vibrant Zimbabwe of that time to cold, grey, <laughs> bleak England in the uh, early 90s. <laughs> it wasn't a popular decision uh, with me or my mother, but my father was adamant. And actually, it was probably quite a pressing uh, decision because it wasn't long after that that Robert Mugabe, the president at that time, started his process of land reform, whereby he took land from the white-owned farm farmers uh, and redistributed it to his cronies in the government um, and, and the military. So um, that, that whole process basically decimated Zimbabwe's economy and turned it from the bread basket of Africa to an economic basket case, really, um, where a loaf of bread could set you back a trillion Zim dollars. So anyway, we find ourselves in uh, the UK. We moved around a little bit in, the, in England. And by 1994, so this is when I'm nine years old, we've settled in Belfast, my mother's hometown. But in the background of all of this, my parents' relationship was beginning to strain so that by the time I was entering my teens, my father was living separately from us, nearby but separately. And my father was always a bit of an enigma to me. We never really had any deep conversations beyond anything like sports and uh, schoolwork and current affairs. We never really got below that, that kind of surface. By the time I was taking my A-levels, so that's when you're 18 years old, your final exams, I was probably only seeing him, you know, once a week at best. And it was the day after uh, my final exam that he actually, he, he was taken into hospital, he was ill. It wasn't anything to be too worried about. He had a kidney problem, but they were going to have to keep him in for a couple of days. So I think it was about two days later, I went to visit him in the morning. And I saw my mother sitting in the waiting room. She'd arrived before me. And it took one look at her face to realize that something terrible had happened. Tendai's father passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. And I spoke to Tendai about uncovering his father's past in the wake of his death. I also wanted to learn more about the person Tendai's father was and about his home country of Zimbabwe. Do you know a lot about your mom and dad meeting? You know what? No, I don't really know a lot about it. I know kind of the, the geographically where they met, but not the circumstances behind it. I guess it was some kind of student party. They're, they're student activists, so they're always looking for causes to follow. And did they proceed to fight for the same causes? They did fight for the same causes. Actually, weirdly, so when my father passed away, um, going through all this old stuff, I, my mother just pulled out this case of just pictures and, you know, there's clippings of him at protests um, for, it was actually him and a bunch of his friends uh, protest for women's rights back in the 
70s, late 70s, early 80s. Um, and they'd been, I think they'd been arrested in the, in the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, some, some cool stuff you get to pick up um, when you sort of trawl through your parents' old possessions, which maybe you don't get to do so much when they're still alive. Did they stay politically active? Do you have those memories? Not so much. It's kind of weird because we moved to Zimbabwe. There wasn't so much to protest about because, you know, Zimbabwe had just gained independence. Everyone was super hopeful, super happy. Um, Yeah, it was just kind of, uh, that was the vibe. Um, Even as a kid, you could feel that vibe, that kind of hopefulness and national national happiness. So there wasn't really a lot to protest. Unfortunately, a lot of that's changed in Zimbabwe more recent times. But back then, no. So growing up, never really got that kind of vibe. They're always political, always listen, you know, to the BBC World Service and all this kind of thing. So always very aware of what's going on in the world and Mm. any injustices happening. How would you succinctly describe the current political situation in Zimbabwe for those of us who might not be caught up? Succinctly. I, I don't know if it's <laughs> that that's actually yeah, it's gonna Operative be a, a challenging one. Okay, right. So essentially, um there was a essentially a de facto dictatorship. Um from independence right up until uh, just a, uh, two years ago, um, which was Robert Mugabe. He was great at first. Um, then, like anyone who has power for too long, he got corrupted and essentially ran the country into the ground trying to hold on to power. So, all, so you know, all of the main infrastructure is now dilapidated. Um, the uh, economy is destroyed. Um, most of the educated population has left to find work elsewhere. So it's not in a good position right now. Um, and they've got a new leader, but he's from the same political party as the old leader. And it seems like nothing much is changing. So, yeah, it's a really, it's a really sad, sad situation because it's a beautiful country. Um, a lot of natural resources and the people are just lovely, lovely people. You know, it's one of the few countries in Africa that's that hasn't experienced civil war, even though, you know, it's gone through all of this politically turbulent time. And I think that sort of speaks volumes about what the people are like there. So once you guys moved to Belfast, did your dad return to Zimbabwe? He did. He went back um, a few times. It was funny. He used to always keep his watch on Zimbabwe time. (laughs) So his heart was definitely um, in Zimbabwe all the time that we were we were in the UK, um, although it was his decision to leave Zimbabwe. Um, and, you know, I said in the story, it was ultimately the right one when you see what's happened economically and politically um, in that country. But for sure, his heart was definitely still still back there. It was where, you know, all of his best friends were, where he grew up. When he passed away, we knew we had to, you know, take his body back and bury him there because that's where he'd want that's to be. That's where he'd want to be. Yeah. Um, I haven't actually been to Zimbabwe since since we buried my father. So it's a long, long time. Um, and essentially, that's because you know the political situation has been in flux. It's really hard. To, it's actually very expensive to get there. And then once you get there, it's very hard to move around. There's you no know, petrol. There's you know all of this. Um, and then a lot of the family are living either in South Africa or in different parts of uh, Africa. So it's actually you know in terms of going back there. It, it almost needs something to pull me back there rather than it's 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 quite a hard hard one to decide to um to go the next few weeks are a bit of a blur as you can imagine um i remember a lot of uh music and dancing and food and well-wishers at our house in belfast for the wake i remember the ba flight to zimbabwe where we were upgraded to first class, probably the bereaved family package. 
I remember the, uh, the funeral in Zimbabwe surrounded by family I hadn't seen in over a decade. I remember it being uncharacteristically cold as well. But anyway, a few weeks after all of that, uh, my mother sat myself and my little sister down and said, look, I've got something very important to tell you. For a while, she'd been suspecting that our father had been holding something back from her. And actually earlier that year, she'd managed to get it out of him. Um, he confessed to her that he had had a child with a woman before that they'd met. He was 17 years old at the time. He was living in London um, and studying. And he'd met a woman who was much older than him. She'd fallen pregnant and wanted to keep the child. That was all the information my mom had. She'd been expecting my father to you know, reveal this information to me and my little sister. But obviously, that wasn't going to happen now. And we, we, were, we had no more information. All the information uh, gone to his grave uh, with him. So, I mean, what do you do? You can't Google long lost sister sometime in the 80s. Um, so I had basically nothing to go on. So I just had my imagination, you know, what, what was she like? Was she like me and my sister? Was she tall like me and my sister? Were, was, she, was she athletic? Was she bookish? Was she funny? Was she smart? Was she weird? You know, you, you start to construct all of these different imaginary versions, but with no way to actually follow up on all the curiosity. She started to fade. I started not to, not to think about her so much. I went away to university in England and then moved on to London for work. And over the years, you know, I thought about her less and less. Um, uh, there was no way I was going to be able to track her down. So it was fast forward to 2010 and I'm living in London and working and I get a phone call um, while I'm out for dinner with some friends and I go outside to answer. It's a phone call from my mother. Uh, and she says, you'll never guess who I've just received a letter from. The discovery of a long-lost sister is the kind of life-altering development nobody can quite prepare themselves for. For Tendai, it raised new questions about the life and experiences of his dad, a man who even prior to this had felt like a bit of an enigma to him. I was curious about how Tendai processed the news, what that swirl of emotions felt like, especially now that it was impossible to confront his father. I know it'd be hard to limit it to one, but if you could ask your dad one question, what would it be? I don't know how I would be able to choose one question. <laughs> there would be a lot of questions. Um, but the first questions I would ask probably wouldn't be about this um, story in particular. It would be much more about his life growing up in Zimbabwe, which is something I wish I knew a lot more about um, and something that I'll, I guess I'll never really know um, more about now. Um, and what it was like for him, you know, moving to the UK when he was 17 or I think he was 16 when he moved to the UK and studying there in this country he'd never been to before. And then what it was like to be able to go back to Zimbabwe after it was, had achieved independence, which, you know, all they'd ever known was colonial rule. So I think that's, that's what I'd really like to if I could ask him anything, it would be, be along those lines. In your story, there wasn't really any expression of anger when you found out the news that your dad had another child. Can you tell us a little bit about how you felt at that time? Yeah. Um, obviously, when I was writing the story, preparing to tell it to everyone at Unravel, I was kind of mentally going back to that moment. And I asked myself that question. Actually, honestly, there was there was no anger. And I think Probably the main reason for that was my father just passed away when my mother 
told us we'd just been to Zimbabwe, gone through this whole experience of, you know, his funeral in Zimbabwe, where we uh, I hadn't been since I was a child. And we just got back to Northern Ireland. I was preparing to go away to university. I was only, I was 18, so I was learning how to deal with being the guy, you know, the man of the house. Um, and all this, so I was very conscious of trying to, you know, be supportive for my for my mother, but also for my sister who was thirteen. You know, it was really tough for her. She, you know, she and my dad were really close. So I don't think anger was there was any room for anger then. Anyway, um, I don't think that would have been an appropriate emotion to feel at that time. But no anger since either. I don't think. I think I've just, you know, I can kind of understand um, how a seventeen year old might bury that experience. This is my dad I'm talking about at the time he was 17 when he found out that he was, you know, he, he was going to have a child. And I can see how, you know, you might just bury that deep in the recesses of your of your mind and, you know, never, never unlock that box, <laughs> that mental box. So I think emotionally, uh, it, it was much more surprise, curiosity, um, and then a bit of frustration at not really knowing how to go about potentially finding this long lost sister. Did your dad ever reach out to your sister? Is there any way for you to know that? I've heard bits and pieces from what my sister heard from her mother. But essentially her her mother was very clear that she wanted to raise her herself. Um, she was several years older than my father as well. Um, and she didn't want him to be part of part of the process of bringing up her child. So I think he he saw her maybe once potentially twice, but I think he definitely saw her once. But then after that, it was, that was it. I think at that time, um, she'd, she'd also, um, she had medical conditions. She'd been told that she, it was unlikely she would have kids. So I think she was, you know, this was, this was for her. She yeah. really wanted to have a child. And the way she raised my sister, it sort of seems to really reflect the fact that, you know, this was, this was for her and she, had really, really wanted to have a child. So I think my father, um, being from Zimbabwe and clearly wanting to go back to Zimbabwe after completing his studies was a big threat to you know her being able to raise her child in, in Wales, which is what, what she wanted to do. She'd been looking for her father, our father, for a while, and she'd been given his name by her mother um, so she was able to track, well, look, look for his name online. She'd managed to find my parents' marriage certificate, which is how she knew of my mother. And at the same time, she'd also found his death certificate, which must have been quite a blow for her, given that she was looking for you know, her lost father. She also said in the letter, which you know, makes it doubly terrible, that her mother had passed away 12 years previously when she was 19. So she was now an orphan, um, and she was reaching out to my mother to find out, is there something hereditary that she should be worried about? She's found out, you know, she knows her mother died young, and now she's found out her father also died young. She also mentioned that she lived in London. So I immediately wanted to meet her, but my mother said quite firmly, no, she will have lots of questions about your father, which you won't be able to answer. And I wasn't happy about that, but I had to bow to the superior <laughs> argument there. So I, I was like, okay, um, when are you going to meet her? So that weekend, she flew out to meet my mother. And all weekend, I was waiting for news of this meeting. Um, like, how did it go? What's she like? The rest of it. And my mother called me up on, a, on the Sunday evening and said, the verdict was in. Um, she said, she's lovely. You have to meet her. <laughs> so two days later, I'm standing um, on the South Bank in London, 
Wind's coming in sideways, rain's pissing down, I've got my umbrella up, it's dark, it's the after work crowd rushing by and I'm standing there and I'm looking at my phone and I'm thinking, I've exchanged a couple of text messages with her because obviously we needed to arrange where we're gonna meet and what time, but I realized I actually don't know what she looks like. And I start going through this Rolodex in my mind of all the imaginary versions I'd created of her over the years. And I'm looking around and I can see every single woman walking past me could be her. You know, I don't know what she looks like. And then I see her and she sees me and instantly we know it's one another. And she comes up and she gives me this big hug. Well, actually, she gives me a little hug because she's actually quite small. <laughs> so that's like 50% of the imaginary version's gone. Um, <laughs> We, we, we go to a restaurant nearby and we, we're chatting and we're just clicking and we're getting on so well and she tells me that she's a producer at the BBC World Service um, and I'm able to tell her that one of my earliest memories of our father is um, after dinner in Zimbabwe he'd always turn on the radio and tune it to the BBC World Service uh, for the news and that's what he'd listen to and you know he'd be so proud to think that his daughter was a producer there. And we chat and we chat and we chat until they kick us out of the restaurant. And then we see each other, you know, several times over the next few weeks. My little sister comes down to visit and meets her and they get on so well. And all the ways in which we don't, we aren't similar, they're similar. So you can kind of see, you know, this familial um, similarity between us all. And I can see my father in her in the same way that I can see with my sister. And we're just getting so tight. And it's just beautiful because it's so easy as well. Um, and I've gone from being, you know, the eldest to being the middle child, so pressure's off. And uh, <laughs> she's going from being an orphaned only child to now having two siblings who she sees all the time and also a new adopted mum and my mother who, you know, just opened her heart up to her and just took her in like one of her own. It was really beautiful and just made the whole experience that much more special. And I know that my father would have been so happy to know that his siblings all found one another. And last July, I had the honor of standing by my sister and having her stand by me as I took the place where my father should have been, giving her away on her wedding day. Tendai's story came to a powerful and happy ending, connecting with his long-lost sister and immediately recognizing all the ways they were connected, unlocking a door to another part of himself and his father. We talked about what the experience meant to him and his family and how it affected his position on nature versus nurture. Did eventually meeting your sister and identifying all these similarities make you believe in nature over nurture? That's an interesting one. People have asked me this one before, and I actually strongly feel that there is no nature versus nature, N nature versus nurture. It's, uh, it's obviously both um, have a bearing on the person you turn out to be um, to varying degrees. Um, but for sure, it was super fun finding out, you know, all of the similarities um, between us. But also, we're really different as well. There's a lot of differences between us. But what's cool is, you know, a lot of the differences that I have uh, with my elder sister, she actually has them as similarities with our younger sister. And that was quite cool because growing up, it was just me and my little sister. And then we had our, our differences. But now seeing those as similarities in someone else, um, that definitely shows you a bit of a bit of the nature side. Yeah, it's hard to tell what's nature and what's nurture because um, as far as I 
as far as I hear, her mom was a super cool woman as well, like mine. So I think we had probably ended up having quite similar upbringings. So. I assume that you guys have talked at length about what that meant to all of you <laughs> to find each other. So maybe this seems like a bit of a trite question. And obviously yeah. you got to be at her wedding. And I mean, you can't imagine a better outcome. But meeting you guys must have completely changed the course of her life. Have you guys ever talked about that? Well, I think it was it was super brave thing for her to do, you know, to try to um, track down this family that she knew nothing about. Um, particularly, she told me that she actually knew another um, woman had gone through a similar thing only only around the same time, and she'd find the family uh, and they'd totally rejected her. So, I mean, you can imagine that mentally it must have been such a hard thing for her to to go and do but I'm so glad that she did because um, it, it sounds like cliche, but it does feel like when we're all together, it doesn't feel like we lost all of that time. It's, you know, we're family and, you know, if if people didn't know, um, they, they would never guess that we hadn't grown up together. Mm. Your mom was at the show when you told her story. <laughs> she was, she was. Which was so nice. Yeah, it was great. She flew in that morning, actually which was awesome. So it was one of the first things she did in China, you know, first trip to Asia, I think, or, well, definitely first trip to China. Um, and yeah, one of the cool, one of the first things she did was come along and watch me talk about her, <laughs> which was quite cool. I assume she felt that was a gift, not a, not a punishment. <laughs> um, yeah, no, she, I, she loved it. She loved it. Yeah. We, um, we chat a lot afterwards, and uh, she was like a little celebrity after that as well, because people oh, just I'm kept coming sure. up to her and be like, "Oh my God, such an amazing story!" and wanted to hear more about you know living in Zimbabwe and things like that. So I think it was quite a cool and surreal introduction for her off the back of you know a fourteen-hour flight <laughs> and then straight into that. What was the conversation like with your mom after she heard it? What was what was her reaction? Um, I mean, yeah, she's she's just a pretty cool woman. She takes everything in her stride. Cool. Um, so yeah, she was just you know you could tell she was just full of happiness to being able to be there to to see me tell it. In fact, actually on the way to the studio, I was on the phone to her because um, we hadn't spoken in a little while, and uh, I said, "Oh, I'm on my way to record a podcast." She's like, "Oh, that's lovely. Does that get, mean I get to hear it again?" And so yeah, she was she was super pumped. She really loved it, um, and it was the best way to sort of kick off our two-week holiday as well in China. Yeah. Did either of you learn anything new about the story that you didn't know before having that experience? Um, I don't... Yeah, I think speaking to my... I had to ask my mom a lot about um, when... What, what it was like for her moving to Zimbabwe, mm. um, which I'd never really properly asked her before. I think we'd never really had that conversation or in any great depth at least. Um, so that was really cool just getting her, her to relive all of that as well because I guess she doesn't it's not the thing that comes up all the time as well so it's fun for her to reminisce and right, talk about that Right, she doesn't get that opportunity and, to talk about it. Yeah. Tendai, do you have a motto that you go by or any advice that you could impart on our audience? Um, I don't have anything that I repeat to myself over and over in the mirror before I start the day. Um, so no I think we'd all like to know that. <laughs> What's your mirror routine? <laughs> no, Can you no, tell us more? No, no mantras, um, but I guess I do try to make sure that my default setting is 
openness and just, you know, acceptance of whatever's going to happen, you know, kind of take it in your stride, be open to new experiences, new people, new stories, new places. And I guess that, you know, if you approach life that way, it's quite hard to get knocked sideways by the odd event or weird thing that life will definitely have in store for you. I am so glad that you came and talked to us. As I said, your story, I mean, not just a highlight for me, but there have been multiple people who have told me either that your story really resonated with them for one reason or another, or were just so blown away by the way you told it. I'm really happy to have the experience and really happy to be here with you. A special thanks to Tendai Chivero for sharing his story with us. Today's episode featured clips from his story, but you can listen to the full version at www.unravelstorytelling.com. This podcast is produced and edited by Sarah Borbor with original music and post-production by Ricardo Valdez. We're recording in the Nowness studio in the City of Surprises, Shanghai. I'm your host and the founder of Unravel, Clara Davis. Thanks for being a part of our story. Next week on Unravel, hear Justine Xu and one of the founders of Shanghai Pride, Charlene Liu, talk about how Pride made its way to China. It was really at that moment where I saw, wow, these people are grown-up adults, you know, living grown-up adult lives. They're with people that understand them and support them, and, and they just happen to be gay.